0: Uh, The philosopher Jorge Santayana famously said, Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Maybe you've heard that before. It's been quoted many times uh, throughout the years. Um, And you you hear the simple lesson there, right? Santayana is not just talking talking about the good things in our past, which there are many. He's talking about the disasters and the tragedies of our lives and of history. If we don't remember and learn lessons from those things, then we will be doomed to repeat those things. In fact, a few years after that was written, Winston Churchill, who's famously attributed with that quote, he didn't originally say it. He paraphrased it in 1948 in a speech to the House of Commons, just on the heels of, a few years earlier, the end of World War II. So we see that lesson on a national scale. We can point to disasters and examples throughout history, throughout the history of the world. But I think each one of us could also rightly point to times in our lives, times of tragedy and disaster. We're now looking back on it. We've seen that we've learned lessons from those so we don't make the same mistakes again. Whether we've been wronged by other people or whether our own mistakes have gotten us into that situation, It really is a grace of God that even in the midst of tragedy and devastation and disaster, lessons can be learned to better us as we look to the future. Now that that mantra from Santayana, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it, seems to be a wonderful summary of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah throughout the Bible. And here's what I mean by that. As you read, not just our passage this morning, which is the actual account, But as you read the rest of the Bible, Moses, the prophets, Jesus himself, and the apostles all point back to this story as a monument of what happens when we don't take seriously the righteousness of God. It's used as a warning so that God's people would remember would learn the lesson as they look to the future. It's a way to remind us of the past so we're not condemned to follow in the footsteps of those who blatantly ignored the righteousness of God and experienced His just judgment. What's so interesting about this is uh, if you've been around church for a while, maybe maybe not even, you've probably heard of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. It is a story, one of the the clearest stories of God's judgment, literally raining down fire from heaven on people. But as we look at these two chapters, and we're even trying to look at more verses than uh, Trevor wonderfully read. As we look at this, there's actually only two verses devoted to the actual judgment of the city. Just 19, chapter 19, verses 24 and 25, that's it. Everything else is the events leading up to it and some events afterwards that are lessons to us in the lives of these characters. So just to give you an overview of where we're, we're headed, we're going to look at this three different scenes in this story. First, we're going to look at God's decision to let Abraham know that he's going to judge the city. And with that, we're going to ask the question, are we confident in God's righteous judgments? Then second, we're going to look at Abraham's prayer, his intercession for the people of Sodom, as he asks God to spare the city if there's any righteous there. And there we're going to ask ourselves the question are you humbly interceding for others? We're going to learn about our own prayer lives there. And then, third and finally, we're going to look at all of chapter 19 and the complicated man who is Lot and his family. And we're going to ask the question, are we fleeing sin or lingering near it? That's where we're headed. Those three questions. But we could really sum all of this up. We could sum up the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in in one simple sentence. And that's this. God displays his righteousness in both judgment and rescue. You see, when we think about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, if you're familiar with it, we most often focus on the judgment, and that is a huge part of it. But, as we'll see here, just as we see on every page of scripture, is there is also clearly evident the, the rescuing, redeeming grace of Jesus Christ for us in this story. And so let's begin by asking these questions of the text and of ourselves. Number one, are you confident in God's righteous judgments? Last week, let me just remind you where we were. We ended in chapter 18, verses verse 15. And there we saw, in that account, we saw God appear to Abraham and Sarah in a special way. The Lord appears with two angels. There, it's surrounding a meal And and the point there is really that God's presence assured Abraham and Sarah that his promises will be fulfilled. It was a, a, a presence of assurance. It was a good kind of presence of God. But immediately, now the story turns. And we see there's another reason that God has come down with these two angels. And and we, we learn that God's presence isn't just for the assurance of his people. It's not always good news. God's presence also means judgment for the unrighteous and the wicked. We learn that they've come down to destroy this wicked city of Sodom and the neighboring Gomorrah. They've come down in judgment. But there's this question that we see in the text here. God is determining whether or not to include Abraham. The recipient of the covenant promise in the news about what he's about to do. And so we pick up in verse 16 of chapter 18. It says, Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in Him, You see the question there. Shall I tell Abraham? Now we actually don't get an answer. We just later read a few verses later that Abraham knows as he starts praying. So God does tell Abraham, but the question is, okay, why does he tell Abraham? God doesn't owe Abraham an explanation of anything. God doesn't owe any of us an explanation of any of his judgments or decisions. But he decides to tell Abraham why. I would submit to you there's two reasons. First, Abraham, as a recipient of the covenant promise of God, was a friend of God. And the covenant was not just a contractual agreement. It was a relationship. In fact, Abraham is the only person who is called in scripture a friend of God until Jesus turns to his disciples and says you're no longer servants i call you friends. James 2:23 says this and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness chapter 15 and he was called a friend of God. So God is in his love toward Abraham in his grace he is deciding as his friend to explain to Abraham his righteous judgments. But, but there's another reason here, and it's very clear in verse 19. Look at verse 19. It says, For, so here's why I'm going to tell him, For I have chosen Abraham that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what? Righteousness. And justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. You hear that? Here's the reasoning here. God is saying, Abraham has a responsibility to teach my righteousness and my justice to his household. And by way of extension, all the people of the covenant promise. All the people of God. So I am going to show him that what I am about to do and all that I do is only just in righteous. He's in in essence saying, I want my people to understand that all of my decisions, all of my judgments are just and righteous decisions. So that they can then impart that truth of my character to others. As we read on, we see that God immediately starts to show us that he, his judgment is just. And he shows Abraham this as well. Look at verse 20. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see what they've done altogether, according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now this is an interesting passage, because God knows all things. God doesn't need to send messengers. I think uh, what's happening here is what Bible scholars would call anthropomorphism. That's a big word. You don't need to know it. It just means using human descriptions and speech to refer to God. It helps us understand this. So somehow it seems possibly these angels were going down and reporting back to God the wickedness of the city. Maybe there were surrounding cities. We already know because from the introduction of of Sodom and Gomorrah in chapter 13, we know that the city was very wicked. There were great sinners there. But God is deciding that he is going to judge. And notice what he, he says here. If you, if, if you have an ESV, probably all English Bibles, you'll see a footnote on verse uh, 21 that says, I'm going down to see if they deserve destruction. In other words, God, Yahweh, is not like Baal, the false gods of, god of the Canaanites. He is not like Zeus, He doesn't just throw temper tantrums and and get mad one day and just randomly throw lightning bolts at people. All of his judgments are just. So he is going down to see if they deserve judgment, if they are righteous. We saw this language already in chapter 11. If you remember the the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11.5, what does the Lord do to see this this monument of pride? He comes down, not in a good way, but he comes down to see and to judge. Psalm 145.17 says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways. And I believe that's what God is teaching us here. He's showing us, listen, this is a, a wicked city. There is great outcry. Their sin is grave. What is about to happen is deserved. My judgments are just. Job 34, 12 says, of a truth, God will not do wickedly. And the Almighty will not pervert justice. So we get this hint That the judgment that's about to take place is deserved, it is just, it is righteous. But then we see Abraham wrestle with this and God teaches him through prayer that all of his righteous judgments are just. We see this in verses 22 through 33. Look at verse 23 with me. Says And then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom, Fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. So you see what's happening here. I think it's important to know that what Abraham is not doing is making accusations against God's character. He's not saying, God, you can't judge people like that. That's unjust. No, what he is doing is, yes, he is boldly pr- praying, but he, it's not from a place of unbelief. It's from a place of faith that acknowledges God's character. And what he's doing, he's praying back to God, his character. He's saying, God, you are just. You only do what is just. God, you are righteous. You only do what is righteous. So therefore, if, if there are at least 50 people in this city, should you not, will you not then spare the whole city? And note God's, um, God's immediate response, his willingness to extend mercy. Verse 26, he says, yes, I will. If there are 50 righteous, I will extend mercy. And I will not, he's he's not, listen to what he's not saying. He's not saying, I will save the righteous out and judge the wicked. He's saying, I will spare the entire city. Such is my mercy. But you you know how the, the story goes, don't you? You heard Trevor read it. Then there's this back and forth. And Abraham's counting. And there's not 50 righteous in the city. And there's not 45 righteous in the city. God would spare it then as well if there were. And there's not 40, there's not 30, there's not even 10 righteous people in the city. And the section ends in verse 33 with Abraham's silence, the Lord departing to judge, and Abraham returning. What Abraham realizes as he's praying, as he's talking to God, is that there is no one righteous in this city. Therefore, God is just to execute his judgment upon this city. Now, I some of you are thinking about, what about Lot? We'll We'll get to him in a moment. But the point is this. God graciously walks Abraham through this process to show them that he is righteous in all his ways, in all his doings. And how does Abraham respond? With silence. We hear nothing from him. He returns. And so the question for us is then, as Abraham learned this, what about us? Are you confident in God's righteousness, in his judgments? Many Christians today struggle with being ashamed at the righteousness and judgment of God, right? Let's be honest. I wasn't looking at this, you know, as we look at our preaching schedule and be like, yes, I get to preach Sodom and Gomorrah on Mother's Day. (laughs) Praise the Lord. These parts of the Bible to us, we know they're offensive to our neighbors. We we, we know it's much easier to talk about a loving God who, who extends mercy and who wants to bless And please don't mishear me on that. I'm not saying God is not those things, but I think what happens in our minds is when we we shy away from these realities that God is just and God does judge and God is fully righteous, we actually miss that you can't have a merciful, loving God, a gracious God, without a God who is also fully righteous in His judgments. Think of a courtroom. If you were a victim of a violent crime, and the perpetrator you know is guilty, the judge knows he's guilty, the jury knows he's guilty, but on that day the judge decides, you know what, I'm feeling nice today, so I'm going to let this person just walk away scot-free. You wouldn't say, oh man, what what a great judge. No, that judge has failed to do his or her job, to execute justice and righteousness. You would say that is not right to let that person walk away. Well, friends, if we do not have a a God who judges, then we don't have a God who's righteous. And if we don't have a God who's righteous, then guess what? We don't have a righteous Savior for our sins. No Christ. And without Christ, we have no salvation. The Apostle Paul deals with this in depth in Romans chapters 1 through 3. And listen to what he says in Romans 1, 16 and 17. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. That means good news. For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Now listen to what he says here. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written. The righteous shall live by faith. So here's the question. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. God's righteousness is revealed there. Well, how is God's righteousness revealed in the Christian message, in the Christian gospel? Two ways. First, on the cross, God righteously judged the sin of his people in Christ. He is executing just judgment So in that way, the righteousness of God is revealed. He doesn't sweep sin under the rug. He's not like that judge who says you can go off scot-free. He judges sin in his righteousness. But here's the second way. And you heard it in our beautiful assurance of pardon this morning. The second way the righteousness of God is revealed on the cross is in this. Christ, the fully righteous one, died in our place He took the wrath we deserved. He took the judgment you and I should have taken upon ourselves. He took it on his shoulders. And in exchange, we who believe receive the righteousness of God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What does it have to do with Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, friends, if we scoff and and wince... At a God who judges sin like he is about to do here. Then we'll scoff and wince at the cross. And we will not understand the righteousness of God for us there. Are you confident in God's righteous judgments? All that he does is good and just. So Abraham realizes this. And he steps away after his prayer. And God goes on to judge. Now here's the second question. We want to look a little more intently at Abraham's prayer here. The second question is this. Are you humbly interceding for others? Look again at verse 22. I love this. So the men turned from there and went to Sodom. Okay, so that's the angels. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. And then we read that he launches into this prayer. And you see what's happening here. Abraham, once again, is acting on behalf, he's before God, acting on behalf of someone else. More generally, the entire city, more specifically, his nephew, Lot. He's acting as a mediator between God and Sodom and Gomorrah. And notice some things about this. First, James, we already saw, James calls Abraham a friend of God. But as one commentator, I love this, pointed out this week, here as he prays, we also see that Abraham is a friend of sinners. He's pleading on their behalf. And if you remember, in chapter 14, this makes sense. Abraham gathered his men and went after his nephew Lot, after he was taken captive, and he rescued the king of Sodom, the people of Sodom, and he rescued his nephew Lot, and he restored back to them all that had been lost. And so there is a special place of compassion in Abraham's heart for these people, even though the city is wicked. We also see here, uh, we start to see a glimpse of Abraham fulfilling what he's called to do in the covenant, right? Remember, through Abraham, all nations will be blessed. What is Abraham doing here? He's praying for the nations. He's praying for people outside of the covenant, and a few things about his prayer here to just think through. And as you hear these, think about your own prayer life. So Abraham's a friend of God. He's also a friend of sinners. Notice also that he's bold here. We saw it in verse 23. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Judge of all the earth. Will you, will you not do what is, is just? He's being bold. He's not being disrespectful here, but he is being bold as he pleads with God on their behalf. But he's also humble as he approaches God. Look at verse 27. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes. So he's bold in his prayer. He's pleading for something. At the same time, he knows that he does not deserve an ear with God. He doesn't deserve a hearing. It's only by his grace that Abraham can pray and communicate to God. He has this posture of humility in his prayer. And then, lastly, I love this. He's optimistic. Do you notice that? I didn't notice that until this week. At first, I, I, I saw Abraham as just kind of naive, right? As we, we if, if the, the moment uh, Sodom and Gomorrah is introduced in the Bible, it's like the Titanic. The opening scene, you're like, this is going to hit an iceberg. This is all going south, right? You know it's not good. And so you have this idea in your mind of the wickedness of Sodom. But when you think of Abraham's rescue of them, of his love for his nephew, yes, it's a wicked city, but he's optimistic. We don't know how big the city is, but he starts with, with 50. Now, this is a, I just want to point out, this is a good characteristic of prayer. Yes, Abraham ends up being wrong and God shows him that there's no one righteous in the city, but he's not cynical in his prayer when he looks at the wickedness of the people around him. And let's be honest, Christians, sometimes when we look at the world around us, when we look at our news feeds, when we look at the the city, when we look at the nations, it's so easy for us to become cynical and say "There's there's just absolutely no hope here. But Abraham is optimistic. This is, this is an example for us to be, be hopeful in our prayers for others as we're interceding for, for God's mercy on other people. There's a wonderful example of this in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 18 has been experiencing uh, just a very difficult time, a time of opposition. He's discouraged. I would venture to guess that he's cynical. I think there are moments in Paul's life that are clear where he's thinking, is this really what I signed up for? I have enemies at every turn. And God in his grace shows up in Acts chapter 18 verse 9 to Paul. And listen to what he says. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you And no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many people in this city who are my people. Now, what does it have to do with Sodom and us? Well, friends, God in his grace appeared to to Paul there and told him he had many people in his city. God told Abraham, showed Abraham that there were no righteous people in the city. But friends, we have no idea if there are people in Waltham, in greater Boston, that, that are, are waiting to hear the gospel. We don't know who those people are, or in, our, in New England, or in the, in the nations. And so instead of being pessimistic and growing cynical as we, we look at the world around us and we say, oh, it's deteriorating, morality is deteriorating, yes, absolutely. But I am confident, and Scripture tells me, that there are many people who have yet to hear the gospel that when they do hear it, God will open their eyes and they will be redeemed. And that should guide our prayers. We should have this hopeful optimism as we pray for God to to show mercy to those around us. So the question here, the application question is simple. Do you earnestly pray for others? That's how you could sum up Abraham's prayer in one word. It's earnest. You realize God could have spared Sodom. There was a very similar city in the book of Jonah named Nineveh, a wicked city that deserved just judgment. But God, in his grace and mercy, spared that city. We knew that it had 120,000 people. And so if God could have spared Sodom, and if God did spare Nineveh, then friends, that means he can spare any sinner. He can rescue anyone. And that should motivate our prayers. And there is an important side note here. How does prayer work? If, if, you're, if you're like me, you think, okay, wait a second. God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. So why should I pray? Right? Maybe you think that. And here's my answer. If you're looking for like a, a logical explanation, here's, that's, that's all I can give you. And this, the Bible tells us to pray. Somehow, in God's total sovereignty, he uses... The prayers of his people, as we are responsible human beings, he uses the prayers of his people to accomplish his purposes. That exists, that works out on a level that you and I cannot understand. but scripture time and time again exhorts us to to pray for others at least 190 times. So are you praying earnestly for others? Specifically, do you notice who he's praying for here? First, he's praying primarily for the righteous. I think that's an exhortation to us, to, to pray for God's people around the world, to pray for God's mercy on them. But by way of extension, he's also praying for the wicked as well. He's saying, God, if there's any amount of righteous, will you spare the whole city? As we pray for others, we should pray for God's people, God to strengthen Christians around the world, advance, build his kingdom. But we should also pray for the lost, those who, who are deserving of God's just wrath, who are headed to hell. We should pray that God would open doors for the gospel, that they would be redeemed. But I'd submit to you there's even a, a, a deeper application here for us to understand. And that's this. Abraham, in his prayer, is a picture of Christ in his prayer for us. So the second question under this would be, are you in awe of Christ's humble intercession for you? Christ humbled himself. Philippians 2.8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ was friend of God and friend of sinners. Matthew 9, 11. Christ was a mediator. He is a mediator. 1 Timothy 2, 5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And Christ Jesus is our intercessor. He intercedes for us. Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Friend, what is God, Christian, what is Christ doing for you right now? He is standing before the throne of God, praying for you. Robert Murray McShane was a, a pastor. Who said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear 10,000 enemies. But the distance makes no difference. He's praying for me. See, Abraham is a type of Christ here in Christ's intercession for his people. And here's the good news. We know how it works out for Abraham. God in his, his wisdom and judgment. The city is judged, but... God the Father hears and answers every prayer of Christ on our behalf. So are you humbly interceding for others and are you also in awe of Christ's intercession for you? And then number three, lastly, are you fleeing sin or lingering near it? This is where we get to Genesis 19. This is where we look at the actual destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah God warns of this coming destruction in verses 1 through 14. We learn that there is someone to be rescued, Lot. But it's not because he's righteous, not in the way we think. Lot is a a complicated person. And so let's look at verse 1 of chapter 19. It says, The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate at Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth. And said, My lords, please turn aside to your servants' house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, No, we'll spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. So, so far, so good, right? We meet this person, Lot. He welcomes these angels. They want to stay in the in the town city. It's likely he doesn't know who they are, and he hears that he's like, "You guys want to sleep outside in Sodom? No, this is a wicked place. You need to come with me." So he's showing hospitality here. This is this is a good sign. But let's remember what we know about Lot already. We've seen a progression of Lot as he moves closer and closer to Sodom. In chapter thirteen. When Abraham let him choose the land, he saw that this region was like the garden of the Lord. It was alluring to him. We also are told in that chapter that the city was already wicked. So he goes and he sets up his tents right on the border of the city. Then in the next chapter, chapter 14, when he's rescued by Abraham, we learn that he moved into the city by that point. Now here we get to chapter 19 and where is he? He's not just living in the city. He's at the city gate, which means he is a leader within the city. See, He has progressed toward Sodom. He has been allured by the, the sin of Sodom. Now as we read on, we see a bit of this uh, inconsistency. He's, he sort of has one foot in the kingdom of God, but also is morally bankrupt in a lot of ways. Look at verse 4. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we'll deal worse with you than with them. When they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down, but the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house, with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping at the door. This truly is a, a glimpse of the heinousness of sin in this city. We see violent sexual immorality here. That the the clear sin at play is homosexuality, but it is also the violence of it. Notice that it's, it's not just what they're doing. It is the entire city. Every man, young and old to the last man, have come to Lot's house. Even when they're blinded by the angels, they're still groping around trying to get in. But we read later, this wasn't the only sin of Sodom. I think oftentimes, this passage is, is used only to speak against and show that the Bible condemns homosexual practice. That is a true statement. We see it very clearly as we understand God's design for marriage and sexuality in Genesis 2. We see it very clearly outlawed in Leviticus. But later on, when the Bible points back to Sodom, that's not primarily the sin that's pointed out. In fact, listen to what the Lord says in Ezekiel 16. He says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. You see, this is so important for us to understand because as we look at Sodom, and as we look at Lot, it's going to, it could be very easy for us to say, that really has nothing to do with me. But Ezekiel makes it very clear that this was simply a city that was bent on self-destruction because of pride. Because of self-exaltation. But it's not just the city. Do you realize Lot's hypocrisy here? It starts off great. Man, there's some some hospitality from this man just like Abraham he takes these men in but then when they start beating down the door what does he do he takes his two daughters his virgin daughters and says you can have them I'm willing to shove them out the door for you to have your way with them so you don't hurt these men he's got this skewed understanding of morality where he is so concerned with showing hospitality to these men that he completely ignores his responsibility as a father. And is willing to let them be ravaged. Lot is clearly not righteous in the way we would think of righteousness here. We see this more as we read on. Verse 12. The men said to Lot. This is after they blinded them and they rescued Lot, brought him in. The men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-laws, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of this place for we're about to destroy this place because the outcry against his people has become great. So Lot went out, verse 14, and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, get up, get out of this place for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. I think there's two things happening here. One, his sons-in-law are they're from Sodom, so they don't take sin seriously. So they're hard-hearted to the warning. But I also think it's an indictment against Lot's character. Because if you all of a sudden care about holiness and righteousness of God, but the rest of your life hasn't measured up to that, you haven't displayed a love for God and His, his word and His rules, then all of a sudden... You care about righteousness? People are going to say, I'm not taking you seriously. And so they ignore him. They don't listen to him at all. But God in his grace through these angels rescues Lot. But even then we read that he is still allured by the worldliness of Sodom. Look at verse 15. And morning dawn, this is the next day, and the angels urge Lot saying, Take up your wife and your two daughters who are, uh, who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. Verse 16, but he lingered. Can you imagine this? Hey, we're destroying the city tomorrow. It's been a rough night. This has happened all night. We're destroying the city. So tomorrow it's, we got to go. And Lot gets up and twiddles his thumbs. And, you know, hey, you guys want a pot of coffee? And they're saying, what are you doing? He doesn't even go on his own accord. So the men seized him and his wife and two daughters in hand, the Lord being merciful to him. They snatch him out of this city. As they're leaving, if you skip a few verses, in chapter 19 to verse 23, we see it's not just Lot who has this this, uh, issue of loving Sodom. Verse 23 says, the sun had risen on the earth, when Lot came to Zoar, then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. Was just a few verses earlier, the angels told them, do not look back as you're fleeing. And what happens in verse 26? But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. As we read on to the end of the story, we didn't read it in the scripture reading, but even though they're rescued, we find that Lot and his two daughters end up leaving Zoar, the small place they fled to. They're in the hills by themselves, and there's this tragic story where his two daughters realize we have no man to carry on. Uh, We have no husbands. We can't have children, and so what do they scheme to do? They get Lot drunk. So drunk he has no idea what's going on two nights in a row. And he unknowingly impregnates both of his daughters. See, Lot leaves Sodom, but Sodom doesn't leave Lot. It's reborn in the very next passage. And so it's really not a happy ending. But I do want to give you a glimmer of grace here. And if you're looking at this and saying, this is the worst Mother's Day sermon ever. (laughs) Here's your Mother's Day connection. It's an obscure one, but it's important. The very last verse, Genesis 19:37, The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. Now, the Moabites and the Ammonites became enemies of Israel. But later on, we meet a Moabitess woman named Ruth. And Ruth became the great-grandmother of King David. And through the line of King David, the the seed of promise came, Jesus Christ. And Ruth Ruth the Moabitess is listed as a mother of Jesus in his genealogy. It's a reminder to us, as we walk through Genesis, something we'll see time and time again. What sinners mean for evil, God means for good. Now, what do we do with all this? here's, here's, Here's the questions we need to ask ourselves as we hear about Lot and the destruction of Sodom. The first one is this, in what ways are we lingering in or near our own sin? You see, I think the easy thing to do here is look at this story and say, man, Sodom was a real messed up place. I'm glad I'm not like that. But you know what? We are Lot, and we are Lot's wife. And by we, I mean those of us in this room. People who are living like Sodom generally don't show up to 10 a.m. at a worship gathering on Sundays. But, many of us struggle with trying to put one foot in this world and the other foot in the kingdom of God. We say, is there a way for me to follow God, but also hold on to the pleasure of sin? And Lot's story tells us no. Absolutely not. Is there a way for me to look to Jesus, to to follow him, but then also sort of go back to my old ways before I met Christ? Can Can I have sort of the best of both worlds here? And the answer is no. The exhortation for us here is flee from sin. Don't linger in it. In fact, the New Testament uses two word pictures when it comes to dealing with sin. Run from sin and kill sin. Those are the illustrations that are given. Flee youthful passions, Paul tells Timothy. Flee sexual immorality, he tells the church at Corinth. Romans 8.13, the Apostle Paul says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Friends, in what ways are you lingering near sin? Do you realize this didn't happen for Lot overnight? He got near Sodom, then he was in Sodom, then he was leading in Sodom. And what did that mean? When it was time to leave, his heart was attached to the pleasures of this world. We need to do the heart work of finding the desires that are clinging to the ways of this world. And by the power of the Spirit, put to death those desires. And see that Jesus is eternally more satisfying than our sin. John Owen wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin. That's like an old way of saying how to kill your sin. And listen to what he says. Do you mortify? Do you kill your sin? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. And I love this. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Friends, if we are not actively prayerfully, with the help of our brothers and sisters in Christ, rooting out the sin in our hearts by God's grace, we will not drift toward God. We will drift away from Him. That's what happened to Lot. There's another application here for us. Not only should we flee from sin, we should also know that judgment is coming. When we come to the New Testament, Jesus teaches on this passage. Listen to what He says in Luke 17. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on, that, on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Verse 32. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. The Apostle Peter writes this in 2 Peter 2.6. Turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Friends, the New Testament uses this story to remind us, yes, that was a judgment of one city. But brothers and sisters, there is a judgment coming when Christ returns to gather his people and judge the wicked. It is a warning to us to turn from our sins and trust in Christ for salvation. Do you realize that's why God rescued Lot? Not because he deserved it? In fact, it's a very strange passage. We don't have time to to get in it. But but Peter calls Lot righteous. So how could could Lot be considered righteous? How could he be rescued? text gives us two answers. First... Because of the mercy of God. Do you see that in verse 16? The men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. The Lord being merciful to him. Not they grabbed him because he deserved it and because he was a stand up guy. Because the Lord was merciful to him. And they brought him outside the city. Friends, the only way any of us are rescued from God's just judgment of our sin is not by any good behavior in us. Sure, you can compare yourself to Sodom and say, I'm not like that. You can compare yourself to Lot and say, I'm definitely not like that. But when you stand before a holy God, every single one of us falls short of the glory of God. Therefore, we deserve just judgment. The only way we are saved is by His mercy. By him graciously, like the angels seized Lot. Him grabbing us and snatching us out of our sin and rescuing us. So it's by his mercy that Lot was rescued. It's by his mercy that any of us are rescued. But also, verse 29 gives us another hint at why Lot is rescued. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which lot had lived do, do you hear what moses is saying not only was it by his mercy but one of the reasons god rescued lot was because he remembered abraham the recipient of the covenant promise and once again here we see we see that abraham is a pointer to jesus God rescued Lot because Abraham was his friend. He stood as a mediator. He was a part of the covenant family. God rescues us because Christ stands in our place. So when we believe the gospel, God looks at us and sees the righteousness of Christ that was exchanged on the cross. That is how we're rescued. God displays his righteousness in both judgment and rescue in this passage. But friends, the clearest display of both God's righteous judgment and rescue is the cross of Jesus Christ. Where our sin was paid for and where we receive, we who believe, received his righteousness. So as we close, let's be confident in the righteousness of God. Let's be be confident in Christ's intercession for us. Let's, like Abraham and like Christ, let's plead on behalf of those who need Christ. And let's flee from our sin and run to Jesus. Let's pray together.